Welcome to Boundaries of Expression, a podcast from Article 19, exploring the limits and challenges to freedom of expression. I'm Jo Glanville. Today, we're looking at the fallout from the reversal of Roe v. Wade in the United States, ending the federal right to an abortion after nearly 50 years and allowing states to pass their own laws. Abortion is now banned in at least 10 states. Indiana is the first state to pass new legislation enacting a near-total ban on abortion. This is not only an assault on the protection of women's reproductive rights, it's an attack on the right to freedom of expression. South Carolina is proposing legislation that makes it an offence to give instructions over the telephone or the internet on how to obtain an abortion. Hosting a website or providing internet service that facilitates obtaining an abortion is also an offence. In Texas, a law encourages residents to spy on and denounce their neighbours for assisting in an abortion. It's creating a climate of unprecedented surveillance, where people may be afraid to research the facts of abortion for their own education or even talk about it. What happens to the First Amendment right to speak? when Americans have lost the constitutional right to an abortion. I'm joined by three guests to discuss the implications and consequences of an earthquake for civil rights in the United States. Quinn McHugh is director of Article 19, an organisation that defends freedom of expression globally. Bob Latham is a lawyer based in Texas, an authority on the First Amendment and a trustee of Article 19. Alexandra Reeve-Givens is President and CEO of the Centre for Democracy and Technology based in Washington. Bob, I'd like to come to you first as a First Amendment lawyer and ask you to put these proposed restrictions in the South Carolina legislation in some kind of historical context. And these are restrictions that we may see adopted in other states. And I'm just wondering, is there, in the past 50 years, comparable legislation that threaten to curtail First Amendment rights of so many Americans? Yes, there is, is the direct answer to your question. But I'd like to back up for just one one moment, because I think one of the fallacies of the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, and it was somewhat simplistic language by Justice Alito, was, well, we'll just throw this back to the states and let them sort this out. This shouldn't be a constitutional issue. And just to jump in and say, you referred to Dobbs, and just for people who might not know, Dobbs is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the case at the Supreme Court that led to the reversal of Roe versus Wade. And the the mess that that will create legally, politically, culturally, state by state, federal versus state, state versus local, is going to be profound and is probably going to take a long time to sort out. The South Carolina law that you referenced is uh, on the forefront of that. They were obviously ready to go with that the minute that Roe v. Wade was overturned. It is draconian, it is dystopian, and it is uh, completely unconstitutional. And to answer your question, yes, we have been here before. So for instance, what the South Carolina law would do is really almost prevent any discussion of abortion. I think what it's designed to do is to prevent somebody from acquiring information in South Carolina, either from a neighbor, from the internet, from a news source about where they can go for reproductive health care. And shortly before Roe v. Wade in the 1970s, 
there was a case, Bigelow versus Virginia, where there was a, a, a statute in Virginia where abortion was illegal that prevented any information and advertisement about where a Virginian could go to get an abortion. And there was an advertisement for a reproductive health care service in New York, and they sued. And it went to the United States Supreme Court, the same court that heard Roe v. Wade, and they overturned the Virginia statute saying that the interstate right to travel and the ability to discuss an issue of profound public interest uh, is constitutionally protected and the Virginia statute violated the First Amendment. So there is that precedent. The issue, though, is that precedent came up at the same time as Roe v. Wade. This court has shown its ability to ignore precedent and will Bigelow hold as South Carolina and other states pass laws similar to what Virginia had in 1972, 1973. Quinn, these laws that target freedom of expression in the South Carolina legislation were proposed in model legislation that was drafted for the National Right to Life Committee in June. And I wonder how concerned you are that that these will be copied across the states that are against abortion. Well, I think we should all be incredibly worried because it was, as you said, a model legislation. And it's model legislation that's going to be targeted for every state that has passed anti-abortion laws and even ones that haven't. In fact, I think they've come right out and said they've since the South Carolina legislation was proposed, they've even tweaked the model law to try and make it more targeted so that it avoids some of the criticisms that people have already started leveling against it. So I think the main concern that we should be having now, as Bob has articulated, is that this is not just a, a battle that's about sexual rights and reproductive health. This is a really a battle about what we're allowed to know from whom and how, and that will have fundamental repercussions for how we view ourselves as Americans and in the world globally going ahead when it comes to freedom of information. This is something that's we've seen honestly in other places around the world. When women's rights to health is curtailed, they always go after information. And now we know why, because it's through information you can empower, you can learn, you can grow. And that's really what's under attack here is the ability for people to understand and debate whether or not this should be something that could be reconsidered. Alex, do you think that these kinds of laws of outlawing access to information, essentially, and sharing information, do you think that's likely to lead to self-censorship and to takedowns as well? Without question. And I think that's one of the things that we're most worried about. We think that the law that is being proposed and others like it are deeply unconstitutional, but that takes a while to litigate. And I think the proponents of the law are actually betting on that, that in the interim, people will take steps because they're worried about what the legal ramifications might be. The reality of that hit home for me just the other day, we were talking to somebody who is a telemedicine provider. And they said that in the early days after the Dobbs decision came down overturning Roe v. Wade, there were all of these rumors circulating online that Plan B was now illegal. And they saw immediately a change in orders for Plan B, including people saying that they were no longer going to ask for it because they thought it was illegal in their state. It's not illegal in their state. It's not an abortifacient. But that level of misinformation shows that when people are uncertain about the law or what the ramifications might be, they do change their behavior. And so that's why, in particular, we need 
websites, online service providers that help give access to information to really stand strong and make sure that they're continuing to put out reliable, accurate information, even in the threat of unconstitutional proposals like the South Carolina bill. Quinn, people are being advised to delete reproductive health apps, among many other extreme steps to ensure that data can't be used as evidence against them. They're being advised to be careful about the information they give medical professionals, advised to be careful how they talk to their friends, even not to drive their own cars if they're seeking help from a reproductive health centre. Should individuals be left to make these kinds of alarming decisions by themselves? I think that there's two points here. One, I think a lot of the advice that's out there is very well-intentioned. And something people should definitely pay a lot of attention to if they're concerned about this. But I think that we can learn a lot from just for those of us who work in in data protection, privacy, or um, online emergency and protection. There's huge amounts of impetus for people to protect themselves online by doing certain things. And there's very little adapting, adopting of those things. So I think that even if we have ways for women to protect themselves online, it's only going to hit a very small minority of people who are actually technically adept enough or interested enough to do it. So that gets to the question of what's the point of this? The point is that this needs to be privacy by design. And that's really what we should be pushing for when we're talking about new technologies and we're talking about platforms, when we're talking about companies. They should be adopting technology and apps and programs that hard code the right to privacy um, which is a sea change in the way that, honestly, tech companies in the United States think. Maybe this will be one of the examples that can help push them to be a bit more open to, as they said, looking at these as design functions in the way the properties and the, the programs actually work, as opposed to what we have right now, which is absolute lack of privacy by design. And Alex, at the Centre for Democracy and Technology, you've put together a task force. So these some of the issues that you're looking at. That's exactly right. And the language we're using is that this really is a seminal moment for the technology companies to think about the amount of data that they collect, store and share on a daily basis and the very real impact that might have on their users. So some of the things we're talking about are what are limits on data? How should they be building in that privacy by design as Quinn talks about? And I should note here that none of these are new issues, right? Article 19, CDT, privacy advocates around the globe have been calling for this, these types of protections for all types of sensitive information for decades. But for us, you know, if these companies are about to face law enforcement requests for some of their users' most private information to enforce prosecutions that are deeply unpopular across the country, this really is a moment where they want to step back and think about that. So we're talking to them about their data practices, what they collect and store. But then also there's a conversation about how you respond to law enforcement requests. Are the companies requiring a warrant? Are they making sure that warrant is as narrowly targeted as possible? Are they disclosing to their users when law enforcement is coming to them for information? And then, of course, some of the access to information issues we were talking about before. A lot of that is in the hands of the tech companies to think about what information they're making available and how they're responding to mis- and disinformation or trapping of people looking for reproductive health information online. So there's a lot that companies can do, and this is really a moment for them to focus on that. 
Google has announced it's going to delete location history when users visit an abortion clinic, but it doesn't sound as if that's that's going far enough. Yeah, so it's one of those moments where you want to praise a company for doing something and then say, <laughs> and here are 18 other things that you also need to do as well. Yeah. Just to give a little bit more context on the, the change that they've made. So if you use Google Maps to look at a, a location, it, the vision is that it would be deleted from your location history in your Google apps. The problem with that is it really is just kind of working in reverse. They're going to create this blacklist of sites that get special levels of protection and then go in and do this surgical erasing from your history. That's really not the approach that we want to take per Quinn's original framing of this conversation, which is we don't want them collecting that data in the first place. I don't want to rely on them keeping an up-to-date list right? It needs to be that there are limitations in how your location data is being collected at all. And then, of course, there are just so many other ways in which your location can be tracked or your intent to go to an abortion uh, clinic could be tracked through search history, browsing history, etc. That it really is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of steps the companies need to take. When, as we all know, the collection of data, the collection of our browsing histories is absolutely fundamental to how how money is made. How are you going to persuade them to do otherwise? So the lines we try to draw is calling out really sensitive information that can be used to make inferences about someone. And clearly reproductive health information is one of those, right, that we're all very focused on right now. But other health information as well is deeply sensitive, particularly if it can be purchased by data brokers, may ultimately end up in the hands of potential employers or insurers. You can think about all the kids in the U.S. right now who have to worry about um, being outed or, you know, seeking gender affirming care, which is now quickly becoming illegal in states uh, in the south of the country. And so there are all of these areas where the companies, yes, may well make money from advertising, but they don't need to have it at that level of specificity for these very sensitive use cases. Bob, I suppose if tech companies are faced with warrants and court orders and subpoenas, it's it'll be very hard for them to fight that, if, even if they, you know, want to do the right thing. Well, the sheer volume will, will make it hard to fight for, for one thing. I was struck by something Alex said, that one key component of this is for the, the person affected to know that this is happening and to be able to, you know, stand up for themselves. And that can even start before there's a subpoena. I, I mean, 99% of people in this country probably have no idea what data is being collected and is, is available. And there needs to be more transparency on that. I think you're going to find that tech companies have fought these battles in, in other instances, but I think the, the, the volume of this is going to overwhelm them. And I, I also think, you know, data security is, is really only one component of, of privacy. We're struggling with the entire notion of privacy. And I think on data security, there may be some common ground because people don't want a lot of stuff known about them. I mean, they want to find out, find out about the other person, but they don't want stuff about them known. It's kind of like free speech. It's, you know, I want to be able to say what I say, but, you know, I, want to, I don't want you to be able to say what you're saying. So I, I, I think there can be some common ground on data security. I think we are still struggling with the notion of what is privacy and how far does it go? Quinn, there is counter-legislation such as My Body, My Data Act that's aiming to try and row back from where it looks as if we are. 
I'm wondering how hopeful you are about success. Well, I think you always have to hope. But as my <laughs> business school instructor said, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> um, so, look, I don't think anyone looks at the Congress we have, even with the most recent Democratic victories that came out of anywhere, and, and think that you can look to Congress to provide an answer here, at least not in the immediate term. Now, whether there's long-term hope and what happens in Kansas actually leads to kind of a legislative or referendum wave in different states that lead to the citizens in different states actually framing out the limits to which they would want government to go to interfere between them and their doctor on health decisions, there might be hope there. Bob, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I'm going to join in the hope parade here for a, for a moment. And I agree that it's not a strategy, but I'll be both Peter Positive and Debbie Downer at the same time. You know, the, the, the My Body, My Data Act at least represents Congress talking about the notion of privacy. Now, it's not going to do anything to counteract the, the, the South Carolina law because uh, it's, it's really just in the, in, the, in the area of data privacy. But it, it, at least it is a discussion. And we have, you know, historically ceded the notion of privacy to the United States Supreme Court and Congress hasn't done anything. And, uh, you know, is it a start? Yeah, it's a, it's a start. We'll, uh, we'll see where it leads. To Quinn's point about the Kansas situation, I think that's provided a, a lot of hope that the people, the majority of Americans, can, can take this issue back. I'll just say here that Kansas voted to protect abortion in the state constitution at the beginning of August. By, by a, a vote of about 58, 59% to 40, 41% in a state that Donald Trump carried easily. So an extraordinary result. Very much so. It also has provided a playbook to the anti-abortion forces of what not to do. You leave it up to a referendum in a red state of people voting, and that may very well be the result. You elect uh, representatives and, and state officials who are on that side of the debate. And, and it may not be that strong because you're not going to ha necessarily have single issue voters. They might vote for somebody on the far right because of some other issue and overlook the fact that the stance on abortion. So whether other so-called red states, very conservative states, will do what Kansas does and put it out to the voters, I think it's less likely based on the Kansas result. And that's going to take a longer time in those states to sort out. The other thing that I would jump in to say is when you pull back from the abortion conversation, there is growing bipartisan momentum around greater protections for consumers' privacy. And there are a couple different bills that I'll mention here. There are three that I think really do show how progress is being made on that front. Um, and what's interesting is that those have been happening, you know, momentum has been building for years. They are not tied to this issue, but one of the impacts they would have is to better protect all users' health information and as a result, help on this set of issues as well. So the House right now, the House of Representatives um, has moved through committee what is called the ADPPA, which is the first major bipartisan consumer privacy bill to get this level of consideration at the federal level in years. And it has within it very meaningful protections for users' privacy and also civil rights, what people can do with the data that they infer about you. Um, and why it matters is that for the first time, we see Congress moving beyond this frame of notice and consent 
the idea that as long as something is disclosed in the terms of service, you know, a user clicks, I agree, like we all do as we go on to go, go about our daily business on the internet and the company can do whatever they please. So instead, it really puts in law this vision of data minimization, of having your uses in line with users' expectations, of having heightened protections for sensitive information, which includes health information. Next step is the House floor. So it sits right now with Nancy Pelosi deciding whether she wants to call a vote on it when Congress comes back from the August recess uh, this autumn. But that's a really interesting indicator to me of how bipartisan privacy issues can be when you think back at the big picture level. I'll say that it went through committee with every single Republican on the committee voting for it, in addition to an overwhelming number of Democrats. So that's one, I think, that really shows positive momentum at the macro level to better protect users' privacy. Then there are two pieces of legislation on this law enforcement question that I think matter just to um, help people understand the state of play in the U.S., even though they're a little bit earlier uh, in their in their trajectory through the Congress. One is the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. This is a limit on law enforcement being able to tap into the data collected by uh, data brokers. The second is about the gag orders that law enforcement can put on companies right now when they seek their users' information. So Bob picked up before on this question of transparency. You know, if a major tech company is getting a warrant for somebody's information or a subpoena. Are they letting the user know so the user can challenge it in court? And many times, actually, the companies are under a gag order from the federal enforcers that are preventing them being able to tell their users about that. So there's also a bill called the NDO Fairness Act being considered in Congress right now that would put reasonable limits on that. There obviously are some circumstances where, you know, a a law enforcement officer might want confidentiality, but we need far better guardrails around it. So that's another piece of legislation. So for people who are out there, you know, thinking how are are advocates in the U.S. channeling their energy, uh, we are mainly focused on the companies for the reasons that we talked about before. But there are these pieces of bipartisan legislation that will protect rights across the board, not just uh, the rights of people seeking reproductive care, but do have a lot of applicability to this fact pattern as well. Quinn, you wanted to come in here. Yeah, I thought this might be an important point to interject just for, for people to be aware um, and it's not a popular point to say in the United States. The United States is well behind other countries in the world when it comes to issues like protection of privacy. I think the GDPR is, or sorry, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe is one example. There's other countries who have been advancing privacy and data protection laws around the world. I've been in meetings in the State Department where companies are actually criticizing the U.S. government because foreign governments will say, okay, show us your privacy and data protection laws if you're trying to trade here. And the U.S. government's response is, we don't have a privacy act. We have 13 pieces of legislation that reference it. So I think it's important to know that the U.S. has a long way to catch up to some of the better actors in this regard, and this is an opportunity for them to do so. The other place where the U.S. maybe could learn from um, Europe as well is actually this There were examples in Europe of exactly this issue of rights to information on access to abortion and sexual reproductive health care that actually went to the European Court of Human Rights. And those cases actually were decided on a freedom of expression basis that protected the right to access information on abortion. I mean, and that's something that, again, as Bob's pointed out, it was litigated previously in the U.S. There was a decision that was made. It's kind of up for grabs now. But there is now at least a body of legislation outside of the U.S. that is pointing to some of these areas where freedom of expression 
can be regarded as an overriding consideration in some of these issues. So there is reason for hope with that example from the European Court, with with some of the legislation that you've been talking about, Alex. And I'm wondering if in this dark moment, that it is also an opportunity for some change that is overdue. And obviously the focus at the moment is on sensitive health information around reproductive rights, privacy. But should we be expanding this, looking at privacy as a whole, that this is an opportunity to see all the measures, some of which you've mentioned, Alex, that that really need to happen? I am hopeful uh, about that. I'll I'll make... uh, uh... I'll comment on that and as well as just play off a couple of things Alex and, and Quinn said. And I think I might have misspoke when I, I referenced the uh, My Body, My Data Act. I, the, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act is really where either for the first time or the first time in a long while, the Congress is addressing privacy, be it in the context of, of data protection. But the bipartisan nature of that, and Alex talked about it, I think the vote coming out of committee was something like 58 to 3. Is that right, Alex? So to two, yeah, <laughs> even stronger. To two, okay. yeah. So I, I mean, that is grounds for hope. And if the U.S. Supreme Court is saying that you know privacy is in the Constitution, it's got to be decided by the people. Well, then we have to have a functional Congress. And is this showing some level of function? Yeah, I think it is. I also think that it shows or reinforces what was my hunch at the time. Dobbs was decided that. First Amendment battleground is going to take a long time and be complicated. I think the privacy battleground and not just data protection, the privacy battleground is something where there is common ground on this giant cavernous political divide. And potentially the American Data and Privacy and Protection Act discussion showed that. Now, one comment about it, we have a problem that perhaps isn't as as pronounced in other countries where this federal versus state issue. I mean, California already has a data uh, protection, uh, privacy protection statute that's very rigorous. And in fact, California is saying the the federal act wouldn't go far enough. And if it preempts state law, then it actually uh, reduces the level of protection in California. So you have those issues. To your question, Joe, about what is happening in, in Europe and, and, and can that be a model for the United States? I would like to think yes, but if you look at the United States Supreme Court, there was always this inward view that we're deciding the United States Constitution and what happens in other countries uh, shouldn't really affect that. And we lost the biggest champion of looking internationally, looking elsewhere for guidance when Stephen Breyer uh, stepped down from the Supreme Court. So, you know, it will be interesting to see if those examples in other countries provide a model. I suspect that they may not to the U.S. Supreme Court, but if the debate and a legitimate and healthy debate keeps happening legislatively, there may be grounds for hope. Yeah, Bob, just to say, I'm not suggesting that the Supreme Court is going to pay any attention to the European Court of Human Rights. I think that's a little bit of a bridge too far. I think it's more about there are other legal strategies I think that people are debating right now in terms of employing, one of which is around freedom of religion and belief as well. I think that was a lawsuit that's being filed in Florida, as I recall, to try and argue this on religious belief grounds, which may or may not be successful. But I think it points to, as I think Alex said in the beginning, 
this is going to be a really long battle and a really long road. And there's going to be a number of paths that people are going to have to try to get down this, to get to a place where we were two months ago. And it's going to take us probably 20 years to get to where we were two months ago, three months ago. And Joe, to tell your listeners what Quinn was referring to is actually an interesting strategy in Florida. It was brought by members of some religious figures saying that reproductive rights are part of their religious beliefs. So it's it's countering the religious arguments anti-abortion with religious arguments on the other side, which is a an interesting strategy. Alex, do you see this as an opportunity? Without question, we have more people talking about privacy and the human impact of what it is to have your data collected, stored and shared without your knowledge than ever before. It is a real shame that it takes this type of seismic tragedy to raise that level of awareness. But I think this is an important moment for people to realize. And so for me, you know, we, we think about a multi-pronged strategy at my organization, the Center for Democracy and Technology. And one is some of the policy changes that we talked about, which we think can be bipartisan ways to protect people's information across the board, all types of, of sensitive information and, and uh, difficult use cases. But then, as I mentioned before, a real opportunity for the, for the companies to step up and earn their users' trust. We are at a point where consumers are savvier than ever before. They want more from their companies. The companies are starting to compete on privacy. You see the billboards, you see the ads. We need them to continue leaning into that and to step up to this moment to show that they are going to protect their users and and continue to be responsible in their data practices far more than they've been in the past. So Alex, Quinn and Bob, thank you very, very much for a very insightful discussion that's actually left me feeling more hopeful (laughs) than I was at the start of the day. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Joe. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org. 